am the, of the belief that the entirety of the American medical establishment, insurers, doctors, hospitals, should come together as a group and made an enormous push for climate. Because the first bill of a Democratic president is going to be one of two things. It's going to be health care or it's going to be climate. And from the most Machiavellian sense, I'm serious about this, they, they should just be like, all you got to do is, you know, it's like the joke, the two guys at the camp fire and the bear comes and one guy starts running and the other guy starts putting his shoes on. And the guy starts running, turns back to the guy putting his shoes on. He's like, what are you doing putting your shoes on? There's a bear. He goes, I just have to outrun you. I don't have to outrun the bear. So if you're the medical establishment, you the, you got to outrun the climate folks. Hello, welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. My Democrat and Republican co-hosts Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton are out this week, so we're going to bring you a special episode from some of our friends. David Gelber, creator of the Emmy award-winning series Years of Living Dangerously, has a new podcast out called Climate 2020. I first met David back in 2011 when we were both working for 60 Minutes. Well, I was interning, really. I was mostly opening mail and putting together binders of research for producers like David. But the point here is that I have long been inspired by David's work, and through the year's project, he and his team have been able to communicate on climate change in an informative and engaging way, which I think is really cool. Now, David is teaming up on this new podcast with Jeff Nesbitt, executive director of Climate Nexus and author of the book, This is the Way the World Ends. Each week, David and Jeff will discuss the latest developments in the fight to mitigate the climate crisis and interview leaders in the field along the way. Political Climate has a shared mission in creating a robust climate action dialogue in the lead up to the election. So we're sharing this first episode of Climate 2020 here today. In this episode, David and Jeff speak with MSNBC's Chris Hayes about where the Democratic candidates stand on climate and which proposals make the most sense. The Political Climate team will be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. So if you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe so you can tune in. We are on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, almost everywhere you get podcasts. So be sure to find us there and tune in next week. For now, here's the first episode of Climate 2020. Enjoy. All right, so... So we still have to get a name for this podcast. I know. What are you thinking? Well, you know, when we started thinking about doing this, we were going to call it Climate 2020. And then, because I thought that was pretty good, right? Because it really said that it's about climate and it's about the 2020 election. I started thinking about, well, how about the race of our lives? The race of our lives. Because actually, this coming election, more than any election that we ever have had in my lifetime has more to do with the future of mankind than anything else that we've been through. Agreed. The race of our lives. But then people wouldn't know that it's about climate necessarily, right? Yeah, and that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem, right? Yeah. So, so why don't we try out Climate 2020? Yeah, let's try it out. By the way, this is my producer, Janet Babin. Um, so, Janet, um, uh, I'm David Gelber, and this is Climate 2020. Excellent. How's that? Yeah, do it again and again and again. To predict... 
and perhaps someday to control changes in weather and climate is of the utmost importance to man everywhere. When there is more carbon dioxide, the temperature gets warmer. And it seems an open question, not a settled it's, question. Is that it's not, not a, It's question? not an open question, it's a settled question. Obama is talking about all of this with the global warming and that... The politicians have gotten away with not doing anything. The election is about climate change, the great environmental crisis... Time is up, our, our house plan. is on fire. They will not get away with it any longer. Hi, and welcome to Climate 2020, a show that focuses on the climate crisis as the top issue of the 2020 presidential election. I'm David Gelber. And I'm Jeff Nesbitt. Jeff and I came to this podcast from sort of different directions. I I, uh, was a producer at 60 Minutes for about 25 years left to do a series called Years of Living Dangerously. Uh, I worked at the National Science Foundation under uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations. I left there to start an organization called Climate Nexus. Um, I've had some big jobs in government. Uh, I worked at the White House, but this is the issue that I really wanted to spend um, a great deal of time working on. Yeah, we're, you know, we're making this podcast because we decided that, uh, that this issue um, needs to be put front and center before the American public in 2019 and 2020. This is a tremendous opportunity for the American public to wrestle with this issue in the next 18 months, and it's going to go one of two ways. You know, it's, it's really interesting. There, there has been, as both of us know and we've been working on for the last eight, nine years, there has been a drought in coverage of the climate issue. Excuse the expression. It's become a flood. I mean, all of a sudden, we see CNN doing seven hours. We see MSNBC doing doing lots of programming on it. All the candidates, all the major Democratic candidates showed up the CNN town hall forum. Then MSNBC has a similar forum. And guess what? The major candidates decide not to show up. Joe Biden decides not to show up. Kamala Harris decides not to show up. Elizabeth Warren decides not to show up. Instead, they go to Iowa to throw steaks on the grill for photo ops. Biden has been particularly reticent on this. I spoke to uh, Chris Hayes. Uh, we'll be hearing that soon in the, pro- in the uh, podcast as well. And, and Chris was saying that, that the one candidate he has not been able to get to talk to him about climate is Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden's central message is, I'm going to deliver on what, what Obama got started on, on this climate plan, which is a perfectly fine message and, uh, you know, keep the United States in the Paris Climate Agreement. But we need so much more. The climate change story, which in your view and in my view, Jeff, is the key issue of this election, is moved to the sideline. That's absolutely the case. But, but actually, we should talk just for a second about the Ukraine story, because this is interesting. There is a climate angle in that story. And, and it's also one of the reasons that conflicts Joe Biden on the climate issue, because right now you have Donald Trump and his staff trying to, you know, trying to flip the script on Joe Biden and, and make the claim that Joe Biden is, was involved in corruption because his son was on the board of a natural gas company. So meanwhile, Joe Biden and his team are trying to, you know, make the case that Donald Trump's um, pressure on the Ukraine president um, you know, was interference in presidential politics. But there's a climate connection there. You know, it, it is true that Hunter Biden was was on the board of a natural gas company. And so it, it makes it difficult for um, Joe Biden, the candidate, to talk about natural gas and energy supply because he's in the middle of this political controversy. That, climate always manages to get tangled up in the politics of the moment. 
And this cozy relationship between Trump and uh, and Mr. Putin in, in the Soviet Union, I mean, when you look at the Russian economy, there's not much to the Russian economy besides oil and gas. Any time where science is being discussed, the Russians and the Saudis sit inside of those plenary sessions and try to fight every single sentence that's written about the science. They are fighting the science every single step of the way because both of their economies rely so heavily on oil, the oil and gas industry and petrodollars. And in that sense, Trump and Putin really are aligned. And I wanted to move on to page two, if you guys wouldn't mind. Um, We are starting Climate 2020. We launched this week for a reason, right? Right. Repeat after me. Heal Heal this earth. Heal this earth. I, I was, uh, my organization, we registered a thousand media for the climate strikes in New York City. No one could tweet out their, their photos or their pictures because so many people were communicating with all of the youth all over the world. Four million people engaged in those climate strikes and there were 250,000 in New York City. There were, there were people in the streets in Chicago and Washington, D.C. And you know, you get a sense of how international this really is becoming. I mean, you see kids in Turkey, in India, carrying the same kind of signs that they're carrying in, uh, you know, in, in New York and Washington and, and small towns in, across the United States. I mean, there, there is a – that at a time when nationalism in some ways in a very destructive way is flaring up uh, all over the globe, it's also true that this international sensibility is being echoed at least generationally. So our associate producer, Jamie Kaiser, and I were out in the middle of this extraordinary moment, this climate strike moment in New York City where 250,000 people showed up and made the march from, you know, central Manhattan down to Battery Park. Jamie and I were out there in the middle of this, and she was capturing uh, some of the comments. Like, how do you feel now that you're here? Is this what you expected? I'm not going to lie. Like, I feel like we could actually get our word out there with this much people because it's like a lot. And it's not only here, too. It's all over the world that's probably doing the same thing right now. Oh, so um, are you going to be able to vote by the time the presidential election happens in 2020? I will, actually. I know already who I'm going to vote for. I know what I want and all that, so I'm ready. Oh, yeah. Who are you voting for? I can't say it's a secret. <laughs> okay. I hope it's a turning point. I mean, I, I'm, I will say I'm personally disappointed in almost everyone in my life, all the people I know that had to go out of town, or they're taking the two o'clock train, or they're this or they're that. I just kind of think, F you, like, what are you doing going on with it and going to your hair appointments? Like, we should all be here. Oh, uh, I work for a podcast called Climate 2020. Oh, cool. Yeah. Do you want to be interviewed? Yeah, I do. I was inspired to be involved in the climate movement because this is a big issue in New York and it must stop. And my grandma got me to be aware of Greta Thunberg and that she's autistic, like me, and that there's nothing wrong with expressing a point. So there are two extraordinary things that that you can hear in those interviews. These kids are finding their voice in a way that I have never seen before in this issue. It's going to resonate inside of politics. But two, and just as importantly, they're willing to put pressure on their peers and, and brothers and sisters who can vote Get off your butts and go vote. So the the climate strike, the origins of the climate strike, it's it's fascinating, right? Because it came from the ground up. Did you guys feel that sense when you were covering and uh, at the strikes? I can tell you, it it, it is absolutely a ground. It's coming from the ground floor. There were really interesting pictures that were circulating through social media. Greta Thunberg 
holding up her sign in, in, in Sweden. And then just 18 months to two years later, hundreds of thousands. All by herself. All by herself. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of other people joining with her. When she took the stage um, at the in Battery Park in New York City, the, the crowd's roars of Greta, Greta were thundering, absolutely thundering. Hello, New York City. And we all should be so proud of ourselves because we have done this together. So thank you so much. Um, let me ask you this. What do you think is going to be different as a result of Climate Week? I think two things came out of Climate Week, one good and one bad. The good that came out is we have a real movement. The climate movement may have been born in, in this week. The coverage of it, the youth movement leaders who have figured this out, that's the good news. The bad news is the climate summit itself was – it was largely – a failure. Nobody, you mean at the UN? At the UN. Yeah. Nobody came in with increased ambition. The bad news is I'm not sure how business leaders will, will respond. I mean, if you had sat in and listened to the oil and gas majors and the, the, you know, the first night dinner where they talked about this, they're stock, still talking about things from 10 years ago, like carbon capture is going to be scaled up. The, te or, the technology. The technology is going to save us. Yeah. Um, Which is far from being real at this and point. And they're not responding to the immense pressure that you're seeing the movement put on them in the political space. And David, speaking of that, you listened to what Greta had to say to the UN. What were your thoughts on that speech of hers? Oh, I, you know, I was so taken by, I mean, I this thought... This is I all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. When they do year-end reviews on uh, television news programs, uh, how dare you will be part of that. Uh, absolutely the case. And the fact that she, you know, delivered a morally unambiguous message directly to world leaders and said, you are failing us, you need to act, and if you don't, not only will we not forgive you, we will hold you accountable. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil and that I refuse to believe. I recently sat down with Chris Hayes. Uh, I've known Chris Hayes for a while because he did a story for us for years of living dangerously. He was really wonderful. I mean, we did a story in uh, Staten Island about Hurricane Sandy, and, and uh, it, Chris listens to people, which is um, not something you can say for every television correspondent. Hey, I cannot believe you made time for us today. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm okay, so um, who are you and where are we? Uh, my name is Chris Hayes. I host a television show on MSNBC called All In with Chris Hayes. And I also have a podcast called Why Is This Happening? And right now we're sitting on the fourth floor of Rockefeller Center on the west side over 6th Avenue in my office. You know, as much as I like your TV show, I like your podcast even more. I think 
I I think I, I, like, I really do. I think I like doing the podcast more, just because it's mm. there's more room to run. So let me ask you a couple of political questions. You've spoken to, I imagine, all of the presidential candidates, or nearly all of them. Nearly all. Yeah. I've not had the opportunity to interview Joe Biden. I think that's the only one. Is that right? Yeah. That surprises me. Not my doing. Hmm. Why do you think he didn't want to talk to you? He doesn't do a ton of media generally, so I don't think I'm in some special category. I think they have been, they have not done a ton. All right. Well, all of them, including Joe Biden, have said that climate is a high priority for them. So which one or which ones do you have the Mm. most confidence in, in terms of making climate a front and center issue? Well, I I don't – I think I don't actually have a very good sense to be totally honest. I mean Inslee is the answer previous to him dropping out. So what I think actually is more important than the candidate in some ways is what happens to the coalitional politics in the party. So I always think about Barack Obama and healthcare. Barack Obama did not want to do healthcare. Barack Obama was not a healthcare guy. It wasn't his reason he got into politics. It just was the case that by the time he was elected and he had these Democratic majorities – after the Recovery Act, which was this sort of emergency thing, that the coalitional politics of the Democratic Party made it the case that it had to be healthcare first. Right. The other example of this is Donald Trump. What was Donald Trump's first thing? Repealing ACA. Was that why Donald Trump ran for president and wanted to be president? No. He wanted to do stuff on trade and immigration. He wanted to build the wall and he wanted to start a trade war. But the coalitional politics were such that they had to repeal the ACA first. And they did it in a really schlocky, half-assed way. It failed once in the House. Again, because Donald Trump wanted to repeal the ACA, Donald Trump doesn't care about the ACA at all. So you know what? A a lot of people who are going to hear this podcast are big Jay Inslee fans. Mm -hmm. What do you think the chances are that Inslee might become the vice presidential candidate? I don't don't think they're zero. I mean, I, I think that, again, every day that goes by in which the force and power of this movement issue set and group of interests gets stronger, the harder it becomes for whoever the nominee is to not embrace it. So let's say that you left television and you became an advisor to the, the candidate, the candidate, first of all. What's your advice on how to, on how to present the climate issue? It's a great question. Uh, I do think the question of pricing carbon to a kind of vision of shared prosperity and bounty is correct. What you want to do is you want to message it and say, we're going to have jobs for you. And, you know, there's even super ambitious stuff like Sanders' plan of like, we're going to guarantee. I mean, that's as far as you can go in making a promise. Guarantee five years, current salary, all this stuff. And I have no doubt that he believes that genuinely and that he wants to see that happen. I don't think he's bullshitting on that. But the question is, do the people that you're making that promise to believe that you either mean it and can deliver on it? And that trust gap is so enormous that I'm not sure messaging overcomes it. Would you tell your candidate to propose eliminating all subsidies for fossil fuel? Oh, yeah. I think that's a no-brainer. So, you know, we know that the Republicans are going to spend tens, hundreds of millions of dollars telling people that the Democrats are going to take away your cheeseburger. And your cars and your plans. Your God-given right to cheap gas, your straws and so on. Is that, is that an effective strategy? Uh, I think at the margins it probably is. But I don't think they're winning this issue right now. They're going to take away your stuff is probably what they have left, but they're losing the issue. It's hard to imagine that Trump in a debate can actually take the position that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. I don't think he can anymore. In fact, they've already – So where does he go? He's kind of painted himself into a corner. Oh, no. I'll tell you where he goes. He goes to the place that they're all going now, which is, look, I care about America. And yeah, you know, it's probably a problem. 
But we start doing this, the Chinese aren't going to do it, the Indians aren't going to do it, and they're just going to eat our lunch. And I want American and our jobs. Will die. And our economy will die. So I just don't, yeah, sure, it's happening, but, you know, lots of shit happens. And So let's talk about, I want to talk about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren for a second. So they both have, they have some things they agree on, some things they don't agree on. What they agree on is that we should do away with nuclear power. Now, currently, we get half of our carbon-free energy Correct. from nuclear power. So that's a it's a dumb that's a dumb take. I, I just think that like immersing yourself in the data on this and like arguing about nuclear is its own subgenre of hell on the internet that I would like to never have more to do with because there's people who have a fetishistic attachment to nuclear on the other side of this, particularly conservatives who've decided that like the way they can kind of thread the needle, which is like care about climate and trigger the libs, is to, like be about all about nuclear. That's now they're all at the position like. Oh, yeah? You, oh, you're so serious? Well, how will we build 100 nuclear pans? Like, put that in your pipe and smoke it, lib. But the fact of the matter is, there's two, to me, there's two issues, existing nuclear and new nuclear. And this just seems not even in contention. Like, obviously, we have to keep the existing nuclear going because it provides half of our carbon-free power right now. More than half, actually. And taking it out would be insane. You know, more than anybody that I can think of in network television, you have really fought for the coverage of this issue of climate. Um, and I imagine that you had uh, uh, meetings behind closed doors with your NBC bosses. What, what did they tell you about covering climate? You know, we didn't have – there were no like showdowns with management over climate coverage. The, the, the bigger thing is just the sensitivity of the daily attentional incentives of the ratings, to be honest. And, you know, they supported – like we did in 2015, we did a week on the California drought, which we – we sold to them and they were – and they gave – you know, to their great credit, gave us a green light to go do and was really expensive. <laughs> you know, you, I mean you know how these things work in TV. Like you go out to California. It's like all of a sudden you've got you got crews and we're at a live shot overlooking a reservoir and we're going out to – going in the Central Valley. Like it was a big undertaking and they were for it. But the the bigger obstacle is more just the fact that there's an imperative on the thing that is popping – and it is very rarely the case that climate is the thing that is popping. Well, you've said, <laughs> you've said publicly that, that the ratings yeah. uh, tend to collapse when you, when you go I, off of I, Trump and on to climate. That was I – well, I, I don't think actually – in the Trump era, I think it's changed a bit. I think pre-Trump, climate was just a tougher story, partly because there were like less moving parts from a conflict narrative perspective. Like it's like it's stonewalled in the Congress. The president cares about it and is doing these things at the margins and that's kind of where we're at. And that was true of other things, too. Like, we did a lot of immigration coverage in 2014, 2015, and it just— Nobody watched it. No one watched it. <laughs> and I think for similar reasons. It's not that, like, immigration isn't interesting or climate. It's that they were frozen in a deadlocked political circumstance. It didn't have the dramatic tension. That's right. But now there's kind of a flood in climate it's coverage. It's enormous. So it's, what happened? So I think a few things happened. One, and I think in some ways the most important, is that human beings are not great— at statistics, the experience of climate change has become so pressing that it is now just a thing that people see and know. A critical mass of climate events. Yes. It's just like, oh, the, oh look at that water in Greenland. Like, oh, look at the Amazon's burning. I mean, I was down in the Loire Valley an hour south of Paris where they've been growing grapes for 1,500 years. And these people are all just like, they don't care about anything except wine. That's their life. And they're like, we're, we're going to have to start growing different grapes. And this isn't said as like, this is a person who's going to, like, lay down in front of a bus. It's just, like, the fact of the world is that it's now hotter. So what do you think television should be covering about climate that it's not covering now? 
I, I think there's a million more stories like that that are tellable. There are so many disparate impacts that are so hard to conceive of. Like people think about the polar bears. They think about sea level rise. They think about Miami. But like even the most banal thing, which is summer will get hotter, is a huge story. It's a it will be increasingly a public health emergency, particularly in parts of the world that are much hotter, particularly parts of the world that don't have air conditioning like Europe. Do you see any sign that corporate America is beginning to step up on this issue and sort of in the way that they stepped up on guns? Yeah, you see signs here and there. I have a – you want to hear – I'm going to share with you a very particularly Machiavellian idea I had, which I haven't shared with anyone, so you get this on the podcast. I am the, of the belief that the entirety of the American medical establishment, insurers, doctors, hospitals, should come together as a group and made an enormous push for climate because the first bill of a Democratic president is going to be one of two things. It's going to be health care. Or it's going to be climate. And from the most Machiavellian <laughs> sense, I'm serious about this. They they should just be like, all you got to do is, you know, it's like the joke, the two guys at the camp fire and the bear comes and one guy starts running and the other guy starts putting his shoes on. And the guy starts running, turns back to the guy putting his shoes on. He's like, what are you doing putting your shoes on? There's a bear. He goes, I just have to outrun you. I don't have to outrun the bear. So if you're the medical establishment, you, you got to outrun the climate folks. And I actually think it would be a brilliant Machiavellian move for American healthcare to become like the leading push on climate legislation. <laughs> you know, the, the, the big oil companies are not telling the lies that they used to tell about, about no. climate change. They're also spending this year more than $50 billion in major projects that totally undermine yeah. the goals of Paris. They are still doing that, okay? There's no way to, I mean, if were they to, carry these projects out, there's no way that we're going to keep the, the increase under two degrees. Everyone is going to keep throwing as much cash in the back of the truck until someone comes and arrests them. <laughs> like, so they'll say whatever they have to say. Everyone's like going to keep saying what they're going to say and they're going to just keep doing it. And that's really the problem. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's what Greta's point is. And, and the core of the point that even cynics make about Paris and the international targets is that like, Everyone's going to keep talking about what a problem is while they keep increasing their emissions and keep relying on fossil fuel infrastructure. You know, Bill McKibben has a piece in The New Yorker this week, I don't know if you've seen it or not, in which he calls for the banks and the insurance companies to freeze out, to divest. It's, just, it's yeah. the next level of divestment. Yeah. The implication is that people ought to make sure that their bank or their insurance company engages in that kind of message sending to, to, the, to the bank that they yeah. use. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tools. The problem is, as of now, like none of it has really brought the industry to heel. I mean, the you know, all the good news is on the all the good news, and there's a lot of good news is all on the renewable side. But at a certain point, the, you have to start seeing the fossil fuel production go down. Um, last question: You have an eight-year-old, you have a five-year-old, you have an infant. What do you tell them about climate change? You know, I don't try to freak them out about it, but they know that it's just a central fact about the way the world is now and what we have to change about the world. And it has become a generational issue, as we're seeing this week. I, I just, I find the eye-rolling and tisk-tisking just blood-boiling from certain quarters of folks. Just this idea of, like, none of this is serious and we're, you know, and it's like, no, like, actually business as usual to six or seven degrees is like, you know, that's like sci-fi shit. It's like, it's like we're... We're all standing on the bridge every day. All of us. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thanks, man. Thank you. 
So when 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 Kyle Pope, who is the editor and publisher of Columbia Journalism Review, and Mark Hertzgard with the Nation started clim- covering Climate Now, which is their big initiative that was a, a rousing success during Climate Week. You know, hundreds of news organizations agreed to cover the Climate Summit, which was their goal. Um, Chris Hayes showed up at the the kickoff for that, along with Bill Moyers, and they, while they did say it's difficult for television to cover this issue, they strongly encouraged their peers to cover this issue and find a way to tell the climate story. So that's why Chris Hayes's um, admonition to his fellow journalists is so important, which came out in this interview. It's also why we wanted to reach out to Kyle Pope. So we've had, you know, I had a chance to, to talk to Kyle about the initiative. It was a fascinating interview. So Kyle, can you tell us a little bit about what this program is all about? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. We we launched this at the end of April, and then just a lot of news organizations from all over the world came on board. And some of the biggest news organizations on earth, like CBS News and Bloomberg and Yasahi mm-hmm. Shimbun and The Guardian, which is astonishing. And, and and I think it will probably end up being the biggest effort ever to organize the world's press around a single coverage topic. And it was just interesting hearing, I mean, it, people were really frank with us. And some people were like, yeah, this is totally 100% we're in. But there were a lot of people who really were able to articulate what I came to realize was a lot of the reasons why the coverage has been so bad. And I was, you know, I was a little bit taken aback by some of it. Like, people still think that more climate coverage e- means that you're an activist. Yeah, um, I can tell you clearly the TV news executives feel exactly the same way at the at the national level. They look at this as a highly politicized issue. So there's this perception. Um, I but, but what you're saying is that you found it not just the national TV news um, executive suites but elsewhere as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really surprising to us. The other thing that was surprising to us was this notion that it's a, the topic is depressing and people will turn it off and people won't read it. And again, like I was surprised just because that's not what the data that I've seen doesn't show that younger people read climate stories aren't depressed by them. They get angry and they get engaged, but they don't. But they read them. If you want to appeal to that audience, having more climate coverage is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And do you view this as the, the the beginning of what you hope will be expanded coverage, both in scope and tone and 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 reach? Yeah, I mean, the main thing that we're hoping for is that people will rethink um, the climate story in their newsroom, and they'll realize that it's, there's not a climate story. There's just every story mm-hmm. has a climate connection. Yeah, and that honestly, that would be a big sea change, telling the climate story across other ways that are outside of traditional environmental coverage is key to this issue, to an understanding of, of this issue. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, when the, the when the high school football team can't practice in full pads in August because it's too hot for the first time ever, right. that's a climate story. It's almost <laughs> like you can't not cover this. Even if you try not to cover it, you can't. Let's let's imagine you're now the assignment editor for lots of these places. What are the what are the types of climate stories you would assign? What would you like to see into this conversation? So we didn't tell people, we didn't give people a line that they had to follow. We didn't tell people you can only do this kind of story because, um, I mean, I, I guess in the end we didn't do that because I have more faith in journalism than maybe I should. I mean, I just thought that <laughs> if they approach this seriously um, and they really do make a diligent effort, they're going to do stories that matter and that reflect the science. 
So we're going to talk about about our trip. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about. Are um, you recording? Yeah. Okay. So uh, you know, I thought it'd be really interesting to go to the Philadelphia suburbs. Yeah. Because in 2016, in Bucks County, which is a, the one of the major Philadelphia suburban areas. Hillary Clinton won, but only by 2,000 votes, which was much, much less than um, than Obama did. Yeah, but in this same area, David, don't forget that voters here in 2018 chose a GOP congressman to represent them in Washington, Brian Fitzpatrick. Now, he only won by a small margin, just like Clinton did, but still, we decided this would be a really interesting area to gauge what's going to happen in 2020. But one thing I wanted to find out in in uh, our trip to Bucks County, I wanted to talk to this guy who works for the Nature Conservancy because he's a local guy and he is an advocate for action on climate. And I wanted to see how he talks to people uh, about this issue in Pennsylvania. You're going to just start recording? Yeah, I'm going to start recording right now. So we went to Bristol Marsh and met with Evan Andres and Aaron Mooney. I'm Aaron. Aaron, I'm David. Hi, nice to see you. Good Hi to there. See you. I'll give you a hug. Tell me exactly who you are and, and what exactly sure. you're doing. Yeah, so I'm Evan Andres, and I'm uh, the Climate and Energy Policy Manager for the Nature Conservancy, serving the state of Pennsylvania. And where where are we right now? This is uh, that's the Delaware. This is Lower Bucks County. So Philadelphia is 15 miles down the road. It's a really lovely marsh. Yeah, isn't it beautiful? I mean, um, so this is a really unique ecosystem, right? So it ebbs and flows with the tides, but it's it's not salty water. So that makes for a really unique plant life and habitat for uh, birds and animals. I saw a sign warning people of possible flooding. Right, right. So one of the one of the uh, sort of services for people that a, a preserve like this provides is the ability to absorb floodwaters. So in a, uh, in a changing climate, you'd actually like to see a lot more of these. Evan was explaining to us that, like, it's a tidal estuary. So even though it's fresh water, it's affected by the tides. And so people do are starting to make the connection to climate change. He said that that was more important uh, or becoming more important. It's a local issue. That's what he said. Yeah, exactly. he, said he, he said you got to talk to people about about uh, about local issues. So in Pennsylvania, it's it's got to be local. Uh, we don't do a lot to say, "Hey, look what's happening in California." That's just not close enough. So on the clean energy front, I have to point to the guy who opened a business down the street that now installs solar panels. I have to point to the farmer who's field flooded. I have to point to the local manager that is dealing with a uh, a budget shortfall because he had to respond to 120 uh, flood rescues last year. And if I try to make it national or global, then I'm going to lose. And I'm not willing to lose. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's take a walk. So where are we going? Oh, we're going to go, we're going to walk down the edge of the marsh here and um, see if we can find the, uh, there's a little trail inlet. And this is a really unique ecosystem. It, uh, it filters pollution and sediment before it gets into the Delaware, which is really important. Can you think of any specific conversations you've had with people that you can tell us about? If I wanted to spend my time, you know, really pushing the science and the facts that I have, that conversation is probably not going to go anywhere. Um, but maybe I can, I can bring up things like the fact that Pennsylvania is losing some of its state treasures. Um, in fact, our, our uh, state tree, state bird, and state fish are all under threat. Well, how does climate change affect 
a marsh like this. So we have uh, a few concerns for the future about how climate change is really going to maybe make ecosystems like this rare. Um, one is, oh, you just saw a fish jump, see him? I don't yep. know if you saw him. Anyway, um, one is, is uh, since this is a tidal, uh, a, a tidal marsh, as sea level rises, what's going to happen to a, an ecosystem like this? Is the, is the water level going to get too high for it to uh, provide the functions that it provides? And then we have a concern about um, what we call the salt line. So if you run into a situation where uh, seawater is rising and we also have droughts coming inland, then you may end up with a, a real problem with the salinity of the water being too high, too far up. We've seen polls, and we talked to the pollster from Franklin and Marshall, Burwood Yost. Franklin and Marshall did a poll that showed that Pennsylvanians are caring more about climate change. Hey, Burwood, it's David here. Does your polling tell you anything about how the electorate feels about the issue of climate change in Pennsylvania? So it's not one of those issues that on its own is driving people. But the thing about Pennsylvania is the largest chunk of voters in the state are whites without a college degree. Remember when we were leaving, we saw, well, I saw a dog. And of course, dogs barking. I like zoom over and I have to pet the dog. And we came across these two um, people who were just hanging out right next to the marsh. Friends. Yeah, kind of friends. <laughs> well, remember when we asked them, are you friends? And one said yes, and the other was like, no. Not really, yeah. <laughs> and you guys are friends, right? Yeah. No. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we're friends. We, see we know really each other from down here. Yeah. 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 Hanging out. And we found in that, in that, in that little couple, in that couple, uh, we found in that couple that um, the issues that are dividing uh, Americans around the country were very present in these two dog walkers. So let me ask you a question. <laughs> if it comes to n next November, yeah. and you have one candidate who says we've got to do something about climate change, and another who says that it's all a hoax created by the Chinese to undermine American industrial strength, how, how are you going to vote? I'm voting for Trump. He's done more for this country than the last eight presidents combined, economically. He's done like when you first started interviewing him, um, wait, let me get his name. Ron Morrison. Oh, my God. You remember. So when you first started talking to Ron, like, he said something right away that, like, showed that he was going to be one of these people who didn't even believe in climate change. And there you were, and you were still, like, sweet and nice, and, like, you didn't make any judgment calls about him. You continued to engage him, which I was really impressed by. You know, let's explore what David was saying here. You're friends, but you disagree on this issue. How do you continue? Well, I have to forgive him for not knowing what's better. I'm sorry. And everybody has an opinion. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's really important not to be judging people, you know, when you talk to them. I think, that, uh, I think that's how you connect with people. Yes, it was indeed a memorable trip, but, uh, <laughs> but it was fun, and we had a good yeah. time. Yeah, you know, but we'll, we'll be back again. there. Yeah, yeah we'll go for back. sure. Yeah. It's the most crucial factor for the planet. We gotta stop this shit. In America, you don't even have a recycle bin for batteries. All right, that's it for us. It's been a whirlwind week of climate action, but 
We'll still be here after the hype dies down, so join us next Thursday and every Thursday for the latest on climate change in the 2020 election. Climate 2020 is produced in association with The Year's Project. Climate 2020 is powered by Exelon, the nation's largest clean energy provider. Exelon stands with the overwhelming majority of its nearly 10 million customers who want cleaner air and affordable, reliable energy. Exelon believes confronting climate change in the communities it serves is one of the single greatest things it can do to help communities remain strong, safe, and prosperous. That's why the Exelon Foundation recently launched the Climate Change Investment Initiative to spark new solutions that will accelerate the fight against climate change in Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. For more information, visit exelonfoundation.org. The show is hosted by me, Jeff Nesbitt, and David Gelber. Jamie Kaiser is our associate producer. Sean Marquand is our sound designer and composed our theme music. The executive producer of Climate 2020 is Janet Babbitt. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Climate2020Podcast. Or continue the conversation on our Facebook group. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And visit us at Climate2020Podcast.com for more info. Thanks for listening. Are you recording now? Oh, yeah. Oh.